It's a tribute to a musician if he can make great music with a flawed instrument. It's a tribute to a craftsman if he can make beautiful carvings with flawed tools, flawed instruments. It's a tribute to a surgeon if he can successfully operate in a remote part of the world with flawed surgical instruments. Even more so, it's a tribute to our Lord that he can establish his church, build his church using deeply flawed human instruments. Even the apostles who apprenticed under Jesus for three years, being taught by him, going everywhere, doing everything with him, and who formed the foundation of the church, even they were weak men who often failed. Sometimes as we read the Gospels, it seems that their spiritual cluelessness and their dim-wittedness knows no bounds. And yet the Lord used them even as He uses us for His purposes. New Testament scholar C.H. Dodd put it this way, It is part of the character and genius of the church that its, fa- that its founding members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ had done with them. And this they could never forget. So the church doesn't get the credit. Not even the apostles get the credit for the growth of God's kingdom. Only the Lord Jesus Christ does. The church still exists today despite its many failures because of Christ alone not because of the heroic efforts of anyone. All spiritual good, all spiritual blessings ultimately flow from God through Christ alone. And anything that is accomplished through us is His doing ultimately, fundamentally, not ours. So the only hope you have of overcoming the world, the only hope you have of enjoying peace, the only hope you have of being of good cheer, as Jesus put it, is your union, your connection to Jesus, to Christ, through faith alone. That's the only lasting source of peace, of joy, of overcoming Jesus has overcome the world in his sinless life, his obedient death, his glorious resurrection from the dead. And connected to him, and only connected to him, you overcome the world with him. It happens no other way. Well, we've come to the end of what a lot of people, a lot of scholars call the, the, the final discourse the final sermon or the final address, maybe we could call it, of Jesus to his disciples, to his 11 faithful disciples, all 11 of whom, Jesus says, are about to miserably fail spiritually. 
In verse 32, if you have your Bibles open to John 16, in verse 32, Jesus says they're about to scatter and desert him. Now, of course, they're, they're incredulous. They don't believe it. Earlier that evening, Peter had declared his unwavering loyalty to his Lord. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Peter meant well. But like you and me, Peter was a flawed, self-deceived, weak instrument in desperate need of the grace of Christ. In verses 29 and 30, the disciples assure Jesus that they understand. They, they know what he's talking about. Now you're speaking clearly and we get it. And they congratulate themselves for their faith. Jesus knows better. And he lets them know in verse 31 and verse 32 that their faith is actually immature, weak, and they're about to abandon him. They're about to leave him alone. And Jesus lets them know these things not to belittle them or shame them or to be able to say, I told you so at the end of the day. That's the way we work. His hard words are means of preventing their failures from becoming final. And that's what we need to remember here, is that God keeps His children, God keeps His children's failures from becoming final. He keeps our lack of faith, our faithlessness, from becoming final and decisive. And so He's equipping them to overcome both the world around them and the weakness within them, the weakness that lives inside of them, the sin, the temptations that live all around them. These men were about to lose a huge battle. And they would lose other battles in the years to come. Wouldn't be the last battle that they would lose. We know Peter himself lost another battle and Paul had to confront him about it, and then he was repentant. They're going to lose battles. They're still sinful. They haven't been glorified, and, but this one's a huge one. But here's the hope, and here's the promise. If they stay connected to Jesus, they would win the war with him. So we lose battles, but... In Jesus, connected to Jesus, by faith in Him, by trusting and following Him, we win the war in Him because of Him. He has overcome, therefore, those connected to Him, those united to Him, overcome. Here at the end of this discourse, this address, this sermon, these final words, Jesus acknowledges that He's been a little bit oblique. He's, He's been using... Veiled language, he says. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. What what Jesus means here is, is he's speaking cryptically in a veiled way. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, according to Luke's gospel, the time came for Jesus to speak plainly 
after his resurrection. You remember when he's, he's on the road to Emmaus and he's talking to his followers. And Luke 24 says that Jesus, during that and other resurrection appearances, interpreted the scriptures for them. And so there, in that instance, as it says, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke 24, 27. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, Luke 24, 45. It's not, as, it's not as though the resurrected Jesus will introduce new teachings and, and redefine his mission after the resurrection. No, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything new. The only thing he'll do is explain in greater clarity what he's already said, what he's already taught him. We might ask, why, why didn't he speak plainly before? Well, he couldn't speak plainly about the cross. He couldn't make explicit all of the details of his death, resurrection, and ascension until the climactic event had taken place. They weren't in a position to understand. They barely understood and they didn't understand many of the things that he said. After the resurrection, Christ's revelation of the Father would become more understandable. In the next verse, Jesus gives an example of what he means. When that day arrives, he says, believers will comprehend what it means to ask the Father for things in the name of Jesus. Look at that first half, the first sentence in verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. And so in that day refers to after the resurrection. Okay, this is just a few days really from now. We could also see it as pointing to Pentecost. You know, about a month and a half later when Jesus sends his spirit to his disciples. In that day, after the cross, you will ask in my name. You'll pray and ask the Father for things in my name. Now, we saw last time in verse 24 that the privilege of prayer is bound up inextricably with the fullness of joy. I want you to see that. We're going to talk about that again here. The privilege of prayer is bound up with the fullness of joy that the disciples would experience after the resurrection. Really, we could have almost read verses 23 and 24 with today's passage. We need to remember what Jesus said right before verse 25. Where there's prayer to the Father through Jesus, there's joy. And where there's joy, there's prayer to the Father through Jesus. Those two things go together. I'm going to expound on that later. Jesus recognizes that there's a danger in emphasizing that prayer to the Father should be in my name. Do you see what he says next? He realizes that it could lead some to believe wrongly that the Father is aloof, is distant, is not personal, is unapproachable, right? Maybe we, maybe we can only talk to Jesus, or Jesus has to talk to the Father for us. So he hastens to clear up this potential misunderstanding, starting in the second half of verse 26. And I do not say to you that I shall pray to the Father for 
you. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. The disciples must realize, you must realize, every one of you must realize that Jesus doesn't have to, he doesn't have to coax the Father into to loving you and hearing you. He doesn't have to persuade an, an otherwise begrudging Heavenly Father in, to, to hear and answer your prayers. Jesus doesn't have to intercede to the Father before the Father will hear your requests favorably. The Father loves to hear from you because He loves you. No, your prayer privilege is based on your relationship with an accepting, loving Father. He loves you, and in Christ, you can talk directly to your Father. Jesus wants you to know that. That's why He says this. It's true. Now, let's back up just a little bit. It's true that the Son's death, resurrection, ascension, ex- you know, exaltation into heaven, it's true that that cross event, the Christ event, establishes the grounds of your relationship with the Father. The cross forgives your sins and removes your guilt before God. The cross makes it possible for you to have a relationship with the Father. Okay? But that's not the same thing as saying that Jesus has to relay your prayers to the Father on your behalf. As if the Father doesn't want to hear directly from you or can't hear directly from you because of His holiness or something like that. No, what Christ accomplished is direct access with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw, in fact, back in John 14, that the believer, the the one who trusts in Christ, the disciple of Christ, enjoys intimate communion with the entire Trinity. All three persons of the Godhead make their home in the believer, in you. Your relationship is not with the Spirit alone or with the Son alone, but with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus. We shouldn't imagine that verses 26 and and 27 contradict those passages in the epistles. There's at least a few of them, which say that Jesus intercedes for us. Okay, so what's going on? There, for example, Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it's true that Jesus prays for you. He intercedes for you as your high priest. But that's not the same as supposing that you have to pray to Jesus so that he can then offer your petitions to the Father on your behalf. No, the priestly ministry of Jesus establishes your acceptance before God. And once accepted, once accepted in Jesus, you enjoy the ready privilege of direct 
communication with the Father in Jesus' name. And we won't go into this, but just remember, we talked about it in another sermon or two, that in Jesus' name doesn't mean just tacking on in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. It means praying to God through faith in Jesus. Praying to God because you trust Jesus, because you trust in Him to save you, because you trust in His blood. You believe what He did on the cross for your sins, and you cling to it. If that's your situation, if that's the nature of your faith, then when you talk to God, you're praying to Jesus' Father, and you're praying in Jesus' name. Even if you don't say in Jesus' name at the end, right? You're praying by faith in Jesus. You're praying on the basis of the name of Jesus. It's critical that you know the Father's love for you individually and personally. It's critical. Crucial to your walk with the Lord. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Spirit loves you. Jesus wants us to think about the Father's love right now. He loved you so much that He sent His Son to remove your offense against God and to satisfy God's wrath and anger against you. The Father sent His Son, His beloved Son, to wipe away your sins, to cleanse you from your sins, and to satisfy God's anger and wrath against you so that it is no more. If you love Jesus, Jesus says, that's proof that the Father loves you because He loves everyone who is connected to His Son. If you love Jesus... It's because God first loved you. He loved you and drew you, gave you faith. But if you love Jesus, you can know that having been saved by him, the Father loves you because he loves everyone connected to his Son. The fullness of joy that Jesus has accomplished for you, the fullness of joy that belongs to you in Christ, is tied up with your knowledge of the Father's love for you. I want you to see that. The full, that fullness of joy is tied up with your knowledge of the Father's love, deep, deep love for you, a love that is deeper than your love for anything or anyone. So do you know that? Do you know that the Father loves you yes, sir. personally? Yes, sir. Good. Yes, sir. Do you believe that He delights in you? Do you accept that he cherishes you despite all your weakness, your wickedness, your foolishness, your failures? Do you believe? Consider the context in which Jesus says this. It's, it's, right, before, it's right before they're about to blow it big time. They're, they're all about to tuck tail and run away from Jesus in, in, in the time of his greatest need. Jesus knows this. He knows what's coming. And yet, here he is reminding them of God's unfailing love for them. For these weak, self-deceived disciples. The leader of whom 
is going to deny Jesus three times. The good news for them and the good news for you is that God's mercy runs a lot deeper than your sin and your fickleness. The Lord is patient and slow to anger with you, just as He was with the original disciples, the apostles. Now, before we consider verse 29 and the rest of this passage, we need to stop and and reflect one last time on the theme of joy in chapters 15 and 16. In these two chapters, Jesus has connected the fullness of joy with two activities. And one of those activities is discussed in today's passage. In John 15, 9 to 11, he said that your joy becomes full when you keep his commandments. When you obey Jesus, your joy fills up. Christian joy can't be experienced apart from obedience. You say that again. Christian joy can't be experienced, not in its fullness, apart from obedience. And so, children, when Paul, God, through Paul, says to obey your parents in the Lord, he's doing it for your good. Because when you obey your parents in the Lord, you're, you're obeying God. And when you obey God... You experience the joy that only God can give. When you're living in sin, joy evades you. It eludes you. It escapes. Try to grab it, but you can't get it. Your joy becomes full only when you're living in obedience. Second thing, in John 16, 24, Jesus also says that your joy becomes full when you pray fruitful prayers to the Father in Jesus' name by faith in Jesus. Your joy hinges, in part, your joy hinges on direct communion with your loving Father. I want you to think about that. Let that sink in. Your joy hinges on that direct communion with your loving Father. You see, the joy that God gives, it doesn't come alone. It doesn't come by itself. Joy isn't, isn't an independent, standalone gift. It always, it, it, it's always linked to other things. In particular, it's linked to obedience and prayer. Faithfulness, communion with God, talking to God. Keeping God's commandments, talking to God in Jesus. Where there is obedience and prayer, there is joy. Where there is joy, there is obedience and prayer. You can't read John 15 and 16 without seeing that. God never grant he, he never grants the fullness of joy to those who are satisfied with their prayerlessness or with their unrepentance. We could 
we could come at this from a different angle. Does obedience to Christ make you warm with joy? We can do a diagnostic. We all should. Does prayer, communion with your loving Father, fill up your joy tank? If so, you're experiencing what Jesus intends, what he purchased for you on the cross. On the other hand, if obedience is drudgery, if, if you only do it begrudgingly, or if prayer never evokes that, that joy that Jesus is talking about in your heart, then you need to assess your spiritual health. You need to assess your spiritual health. True joy is bound up with God. If we could just simplify this, true joy is bound up with God. You, you won't find what you're looking for anywhere else. Nothing will foster your joy as much as growing in your desire to obey Jesus, growing in your commitment to prayer, and growing in your awareness of the Father's love for you in Christ. Like the apostles, you and I can and often do falsely assess ourselves in light of these truths. So we, we read something like this, we hear something like this, and then we assess ourselves, but we, we can easily, all too easily, assess ourselves falsely. The disciples missed, misjudged their, their spirituality, their spiritual maturity in verses 29 and 30. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and you have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. The disciples claim to know more than they actually do. Their confession here, their profession of faith, it's, it's not wrong. It's not false. Everything they say in verse, verses 29 and 30 is quite orthodox. But Jesus is about, is, is about to point out how little they understand. And before we look at his response, we need to get inside their heads. Okay, let's, let's think about what they're thinking and what they think they know. The reason the disciples say they believe that Jesus came from God, the, re, the way they come to this confession, yes, you came from God, is that he knows all things and doesn't even need people to ask him questions before he knows what their questions are. Now, you don't, you don't, that's right. He does do that. But as we discussed last time, you don't, even have, you don't necessarily have to be God to know what someone's questions are, right? So, so we could say they're getting there, they're getting closer, but they're, they're lacking much. So, so they're correct to reach this conclusion, but their confession comes up short because it focuses on a relatively unimportant aspect of what Jesus has said and done, what he's teaching them and what he wants them to be thinking about. They're just they're missing they're missing the point, and seizing on his ability to anticipate questions, they overlook 
his mission. They overlook the gospel. They overlook his reason for leaving heaven and coming to earth. They overlook his coming suffering and death at the hands of the religious leaders and the Gentiles. They overlook the central truths that Jesus is all about and has been all about for three years. For their good, Jesus needs to tell them that they've assessed themselves too highly and they don't know as much as they think. Their faith and their discernment don't deserve such high marks. So Jesus answered them, verse 31, if you're following along. Do you now believe? There's, there's a question here. In, in the original text, we aren't given question marks, right? So we, we kind of have to interpret question marks, and usually it's pretty easy. There's some debate. Is this a statement or a question? Is, is Jesus ironically saying, oh, so you, you now believe, or do you now believe? Either way, though, there's gentle irony in his words, and the inadequacy of their faith is revealed in verse 32. Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. The disciples aren't lying when they say they believe. They believe after a fashion. They, their faith is real as far as it goes. Which, which is true of all of us. But it's not, their faith is not what it's going to be. It's not what it'll be once they're gripped by the resurrection power of Jesus. In a few hours, they're going to split. They're going to scatter. They're going to leave Jesus to fend for himself. And they're going to demonstrate how little they grasp about the truth and about themselves. They're going to demonstrate how little they know about themselves and about the truth. And there's a, an important lesson here for each of us and all of us as a community. We're prone to duplicate the failings of these first disciples, these first followers of Jesus, including these failures that we're talking about here in John 16. We may, we may find ourselves focusing our attention on secondary points of theology, on, on the things that maybe make us distinct from other Christians, and yet overlook the central truths at the heart of the gospel. Central truths that Jesus is all about. Are you all about what Jesus is all about? Are we all about, as a church, what Jesus is all about? We may dot all of our liturgical I's and cross all our theological T's. And yet overlook the mission that the Father gave Jesus and that Jesus now gives us. It's easy for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that our understanding is far more mature, far more sophisticated 
than it really is. But maybe we're not as theologically perceptive as we thought. Maybe we're less mature spiritually than we imagined. Maybe our grasp on the truth and on ourselves is fraught with more deficiencies than we wanted to think possible. Of course, there's no maybe about it. It's a fact. We're not all that we envision ourselves to be. If God isn't regularly exposing your immaturity, your self-deception, your weakness of faith, your poor understanding of the truth, your poor understanding of yourself, then He's not growing you. He's not sanctifying you. This is true of individuals. And it's true of churches. Commenting on these verses, J.C. Ryle reflected on the need for what he calls self-distrust. Self-distrust. He writes, We need not doubt that the profession of the eleven was real and sincere. They honestly meant what they said, but they did not know themselves. They did not know what they were capable of doing under the pressure of the fear of men and of strong temptation. They had not rightly estimated the weakness of the flesh, the power of the devil, the feebleness of their own resolutions, the shallowness of their own faith. All this they had yet to learn by painful experience. Like young recruits, they had yet to learn that it is one thing to know the soldier's drill and wear the uniform, and quite another thing to be steadfast in the day of battle. Let us mark these things, he continues, and learn wisdom. The true secret of spiritual strength is self-distrust and deep humility. When I am weak, said a great Christian, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12.10 None of us perhaps have the least idea how much we might fall if placed suddenly under the influence of strong temptation. Happy is he who never forgets the words. Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And who prays daily, hold me up and then I shall be safe. End quote. Why has Jesus spoken all these things to his disciples? Why has he said all this? Verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The root of joylessness is sin. The root of peacelessness, if you'll allow me to make up a word, is sin. I know this because I know that joy and peace stem from union and 
communion with God. And sin is what drives the wedge between us and God. So joy and peace are in God, and sin is what drives a wedge between our fellowship, our communion with God. Joy and peace come together. Christ gives both. When he gives one, he gives the other. They're both fruits of the Spirit. When you, when you have joy, you have peace. When you have peace, you have joy. They're two sides of one coin. And peace isn't a momentary emotion. It isn't a fleeting experience. It's not the feeling that the hippies had back in the 60s. The, the peace Jesus is talking about is a supernatural gift from God. It's the only place you can get it. Only person you can get it from. It flows from a restored relationship with God in Christ. In fact, that restored relationship, that reconciliation with God is peace itself. The cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus, makes peace between you and God because there was enmity before the cross. Without the blood of Jesus, you and God are enemies. And his wrath is what you feel. And the guilt and shame of your sin is the only thing you know. But in Christ, because of Christ, in the blood of Jesus, you are at peace with God. And from that foundational peace flows the peace that you experience, the inner peace, we might call it, the peace that you have in your heart that surpasses understanding. This peace that Jesus is talking about is a peace that trumps all the tribulations you'll ever experience in this world. The the tribulations of the world are powerless. They, They have no power over the peace of Christ. And so Jesus ends his teaching in verse 33. His teaching, his, his last words to his disciples with the promise that you must believe. That they must, they, they had to believe and that you must believe. Jesus is calling you to believe in his victory over the world and its troubles. Christ has purchased your joy and he's paid for your lack of joy. He's purchased your peace and he's paid for your lack of peace. He's accomplished those things in you, for you, through you. And your response is to take heart and to believe that it's true, to accept it, to know that it's real, and then to do battle against the unbelief that continues to creep into your heart. Unbelief and doubt undermine your joy and your peace. And Jesus is interested in making sure that you know that he's come to give you joy and peace. That's what he's about in this discourse. One of the things he's about. Unbelief and doubt undermine your joy and your peace by telling you to trust yourself and to distrust Jesus which is exactly backward. That was Satan's trick with Adam and Eve. Don't trust God. Trust yourself 
on this one. Make up your own mind. Make up your own decision. And they lost peace. The perfect peace that they had in perfect fellowship with God. So put your unbelief to death. This week in particular, maybe even today, identify whatever it is that hinders your peace, your joy in Jesus. It might be a precious sin that you're refusing to let go of. It might be a misplaced priority that's been nagging you, but you don't want to readjust. It might be prayerlessness, a lack of communion with God. It might be self-sufficiency, relying on your own strength rather than on God. Whatever it is, put it to death and replace it with the love for Christ and his beauty. One author has put it this way. What hinders our joy is our habit of ingesting so much of the cotton candy of this world that we never get around to feasting on the rich, satisfying joy that is ours in Jesus. I'm going to read that again. Listen to this. What hinders our joy is our habit of ingesting so much of the cotton candy of this world that we never get around to feasting on the rich, satisfying joy that is ours in Jesus, end quote. Is that you? Are your days, your weeks, your months, your years consumed with spiritual cotton candy? Maybe at best. Or worse, do you not even have that? So that you never get around, whatever it is, wherever you are, you never get around to feasting on the soul-satisfying riches of Christ. As I think about most of my experiences of joylessness, and as I think about the joylessness of those I've counseled over my, my years of pastoral ministry and just being a human, it occurs to me that I've never counseled anyone who is struggling with joylessness and feasting deeply on Christ at the same time. Now, that's not to say that I've never counseled somebody or, or myself been in a situation where there was, there was deep uh, you know, soul issues, hard things that brought sadness while also being in communion, deep communion with Christ. I'm talking about the joy that Christ gives, that underlying joy that goes deeper than all those other things, whatever sadness you're experiencing, whatever disappointment you're experiencing, there's an underlying joy that goes deeper than all of those things. And that's more fundamental. I've never myself lacked joy and been communing with God deeply, richly at the same time. I'm never joyless and feasting on Christ 
in the same day. The way, the way you experience joy and peace in times of trouble is simply by abiding in Christ. Remember John 15, the first part of John 15? It, it really is that simple too. The way you experience victory, the way you overcome the world, the way you overcome faithlessness, the way you overcome joylessness, the way you overcome troubles, the way you overcome peacelessness is by abiding in Christ and abiding in Him alone. Running to Him and running to Him for those things alone. Christian, you're a branch connected to the vine. The vine with the capital V. You receive all your strength, all your nourishment, all your spiritual vitality through the true vine, Jesus Christ. You'll have difficulties and major setbacks in this world. But if you're a true branch, a true branch in Jesus, a true branch abiding in Jesus, a true branch walking with Jesus in faith, in faithfulness, in obedience, in prayer, you'll overcome in Him and you'll enjoy God's peace. And it's a peace that fuels joy and rises above all of your circumstances. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for these promises, for these challenges in your scripture. They challenge us, but they also assure us, they give us promises, they give us things to hold on to. And so help us hold on to them by faith in your Son, Jesus, and by the power of his Spirit working in us. Amen.